This morning to the book of Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 6, a passage which I'm sure will be read in many pulpits on this Sunday, on this particular day following the events of the week past. Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 5. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, where the prophet writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word this morning. Well, on Thursday past we lost our beloved Queen Elizabeth. We know that she reigned longer than any monarch in our history. That she ascended to the throne when... Winston Churchill was Prime Minister, and it's hard to imagine national life without her. The announcement of her death came as a great shock to the nation, and I I was surprised personally how I was impacted by her death. I, I, you know, I, I'm not a person who very often responds to celebrity deaths or royalty deaths, but I certainly shed a tear when I heard and thought about the passing of our queen. She was, as, as was said by the former Prime Minister Tony Blair, the matriarch of the nation. And we felt, even if we had never met her, that she was something of a mother or a grandmother figure to us. Although she was 96 years old, we knew that her time would be short. But when the news came, it certainly caught us off guard especially since just 48 hours before she had been meeting with the new Prime Minister and conferring the right to form a government onto her. The one word that I've heard over and over as King Charles III ascends to the throne is the word continuity. Our politicians and our media are very keen to have us believe that nothing has changed in many respects. And That is certainly true with respect to tradition and to ceremony. But it's not true to say that nothing has changed. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21 has a very interesting statement in respect to the passing of kings and the ascent of new kings. When it says this of the Lord, He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings And setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise. 
and knowledge to them that know understanding. And so the changing of a monarch is a change of times and of seasons. One of the constants of our national life has been removed. These are changing times. And most of us sense that there are times that are not changing in favor of the believer. There are not times that are changing, we sense, for the better. The Queen was, as Gordon said in his children's talk, and I also believe, was a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I expect she is at home with the Lord today. Her life of service was indeed reflective of her faith. But the new king, it seems, does not share his mother's faith on that kind of personal level. We know from his past comments that he is pluralistic in his religious outlook. And his past statements do not, don't do much to fill us with confidence that his reign will necessarily be a good one for the church of God. Historically, both reigns of King Charles I and King Charles II were difficult times for the believing churches. And I fear that the reign of King Charles III, albeit that he's not an absolute monarch, will nevertheless prove to be somewhat the same. The tide of time is turning against the church of God and against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And although our monarchy is a constitutional monarchy and is again Gordon rightfully pointed out the parliament passes the laws of our land. The queen nevertheless seemed to be a reassuring presence. And as has been pointed out by many commentators, she was a unifying figure for the nation. There is with the queen's passing perhaps a feeling among many of confusion. A lostness, if you like, as though we were suddenly without a rudder, as we were losing direction, that something ominous happened and is about to happen. These friends are uncertain and unsettling times. And we're in a very similar place to where ancient Judah was as Isaiah penned the words of of Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. Now though he didn't finish well, For the most part, King Uzziah was a good and godly king. He came to the throne when he was but 16 years of age. And he reigned 52 years over the land of Judah. In fact, his reign was second in its length only to that of King Manasseh. King Manasseh, of course, his reign was overshadowed by terrible wickedness. But King Uzziah was largely a king who presided over a prosperous kingdom. Look with me for a moment in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles chapter 26. I want to read just the first five verses of this passage, really this whole chapter gives us a record, a chronicle, if you like, of King Uzziah's reign, as well as other kings. But here we see in chapter 26 and verses 1 through 5, the introduction to King Uzziah's reign. And it says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah 
who was 16 years old and made him king in the room of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after that the king slept with his fathers. 16 years old was Uzziah when he began to reign and he reigned 50 and 2 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jechaliah of Jerusalem and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. There are several positives that can be gleaned from this passage concerning Uzziah's reign. He was, as we see in these opening verses, a great leader. Verse 2 tells us that he built Eloth and he restored it uh, to Judah. He subdued his his father's old enemies, uh, the Edomites. And further down the text you'll find that also he was victorious over many enemies of Judah beside. He amassed around him an army of some 300,000 men and they were feared throughout that region. If you were to glance at verse 8, you'd see that Uzziah's name was spread abroad even into the entering in of Egypt. His soldiers were among the most and best equipped of the region. They wanted for nothing. Verse 14 tells us they were furnished with every kind of weaponry and protected by every available means of the day. Verse 15 tells us that Uzziah erected uh, great catapults upon the walls of Jerusalem that hurled stones and rocks great distances and in so doing he protected the city through engineering. He became a great architect. In verse 9 he built cities, he rebuilt cities, he strengthened the walls of Jerusalem that had fallen during his father's reign. He increased the land's water supply and he digged many wells round about. He became a great agriculturalist, according to verse 10. We're told that he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains. Husbandmen also in fine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. He was a great king. And his rule brought a measure of dignity, peace, prosperity, and security to a people who to that point had suffered from a rather unstable and, and, uh, and idolatrous monarch. But the key to understanding Uzziah's success is found in that fifth verse, in that commentary that is made by the chronicler. It says, And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. If you go down to verse 7, it says, And God helped him. Verse 8 says, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. And verse 15 tells us that he was marvelously helped till he was strong. God was behind his success. And as long as God got first place in Uzziah's life and reign, there was no interruptions in his march to rising prosperity. But sadly his reign came to a a rather abrupt end insofar as he surrendered to the sin of pride. He failed to give God the glory. He took upon himself the priestly role. He rushed into the temple and God smote him with leprosy. He was exiled and died as a leper. This is the king of whom Isaiah writes after 52 years of rule 
in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, the people of Judah at this point probably thought there couldn't have been a worse moment for the king to die. And you might have thought that even this week with the passing of our queen. You may have thought, well, you know, we've got a new prime minister and now the the queen has died. It couldn't have come, certainly for her, I would imagine, at a worse moment. No prime minister anticipates in their first week of office that they will have to break that kind of news to parliament and to the nation. With respect to the people of Judah in the days of Isaiah, they were under the cosh. The Assyrians they knew were gathering to the northlands of Israel. They were about to invade that land. There was fear in the southern kingdom of Judah because as that invasion was imminent, there was every possibility that the Assyrians would sweep southward and take Judah also. And so for the people of Judah, this was a very real threat. The loss of their king actually gave way to uncertain and unsettling times in their land. And now sitting upon the throne of Judah was a king by the name of Jotham. A young man, just 25 years old, untried, untested, with no experience of government. There was a very interesting statement read yesterday on the BBC, or, or a quote from a BBC reporter yesterday, uh, as he was speaking about the accession of the king uh, to the throne. And he said this, We have a head of state and a prime minister who have less than a week's experience between them in their respective roles. And you think about that, I thought about that, and I thought, that's true. We have two people at the helm of our nation who, although undoubtedly equipped for the jobs that they do, are actually in those roles less than a week. Well, Judah was in a similar position. They had this young king. And he was facing a very grave enemy. And there was every possibility that he was going to have to lead them into battle. And they were unsure whether he would be the man for the job. So to add to their woes, the nation then we find was divested of biblical truth and morality. Indeed, woes is the very term that Isaiah uses as he proclaims six condemnations of the nation's spiritual state. If you look back in chapter 5 of this book and verses 8 through 10, you see the woe of selfish ambition. He he condemns them there and he says in verse 5, and now go to, I will tell you uh, what I will do. Sorry, I'm reading verse. Have I got that right? No, I start at verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 8. Reading verse 5 for some reason. Verse 8. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place, that, they, uh, that there be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ears, saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without habitation. Notice what these people were concerned with. They were laying field to field. They were expanding their territory, their property. Uh, They were buying up land. They were building homes. They were concerned only with themselves and their own personal prosperity. It was a time of selfish ambition. Notice in verse 11 and 12, it was a time of carnal pleasure and Isaiah brings a woe there. He says, woe to them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, 
that continue until night till wine inflame them. I was in the airport with my wife a few weeks ago and uh, we were getting a flight, I think it was 11 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And she commented on the fact that people were drinking already. And, and I said to her, honey, I've been in this airport at 6 o'clock in the morning and people are drinking already. Well, what difference that than this? Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink. Verse 12 says that they do it, that it will inflame them. And the harp and the vial and the tablet and the pipe and the wine are in their feasts. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. Verse 18, there's a woe to those who willfully sin. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were with a cart rope. They say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. They didn't care about God's judgment. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come that we may know it. And then verse 20 we read of those who, uh, who were guilty of perverted values. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own, uh, in their own sight. Verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 20, was, uh, verse 20 was perverted values. Verse 21 is selfish pride. Verse 20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And again, woe unto them that are mighty to drink and men of strength to mingle strong drink. And finally, verse 22. There's a woe unto those who engage in wicked justice. It says... Verse 23, which justify the wicked for righteous for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall, be, shall go up as dust because they've cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Can we not say that Isaiah's times were like our times or our times were like Isaiah's times? Would you not say of the kingdom today, the United Kingdom, that the people have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, that they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel, that our nation is far removed from its Christian roots and its Christian heritage, that we're moving into a time in which it seems that darkness will prevail over the land, and in which Christianity shall take a, uh, take a, 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 passive, a, a historic role. His times were not unlike our times. Our nation too has bounced from crisis to crisis in recent years. From Brexit to COVID to the effects of the Ukrainian war in Europe and to soaring inflation and now an energy crisis. There's tensions between east and west. There's divisions between left and right. There's a culture war ongoing and a determined effort by wicked men right throughout the land to rid the land of our, of our Christian heritage and to revise our history. And now the queen dies. And we wonder where are we going? Well, coming back to our text in chapter 6, 
As Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw also. God gave him a revelation of himself. And I want you to notice his vision there in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. So here they were at a time of national uncertainty, and God gave Isaiah a revelation of himself, ruling and reigning and sitting upon his throne, unmoved by earthly events. Aren't you glad for that? For here we are as a nation in a time of great uncertainty with a new king and a new prime minister presiding over parliament that seems a parliament that seems at times to be impotent, that seems to be inept, that seems at times to be certainly immoral, and yet God is still on his throne. In the words of J.M. Riddle, no winds of change blow across God's throne. He's always the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's always in control. And this is where Isaiah comes in. Isaiah sees him high and lifted up in his tree, and that is his garments, uh, fill the temple. You know, in ancient times, a king's glory was displayed by means of his vestments. Indeed, it's no less the case in our day, uh, because when you observe the royal weddings, you may, may remember uh, that, uh, that the, the bride would come in. The bridal train is often uh, a very lengthy and flowing uh, garment, so as to emphasize the importance of of the occasion and the place of a future queen. Probably next year sometime we'll see the king's coronation. And he will wear robes and garments that trail behind him so as to underscore his position and the glory of his reign. Well, God's glory is in his train. It follows after him. It fills the temple. And as he sits upon his throne, verse 2 tells us, as he sits there ruling and reigning, sovereign over all, he is worshipped by the seraphims and they sing together, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, here's these wonderful six-winged creatures mentioned only here in Scripture that, that are ministering around the throne of God and their wings are moved in such a way as to indicate awe and humility and service in his, pre- pre- in his presence. In fact, their whole service is an act of worship. Hence that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 29 and 9. He says, in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. The king in addressing the nation on Friday evening, and I certainly want to give him a lot of grace, given that his mother had just passed away. But he said something that kind of caught my attention. He described her as entering into heaven, surrounded by a legion of angels. And my thought was, well, 
In heaven, the legion of angels are the reserve of only one king. And that king sits upon this throne. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The angels worship him. And the very posts of the door move at the voice of him that cries. And the house is filled with smoke. This is a scene of majesty. This is a scene of glory. This is a scene of grandeur. And God wants us to see it to remind us that the individual who sits upon the throne or the person who sits in the prime minister's chair or the person who reigns from the White House or rules from Moscow or any other seat of power is not ultimately the power that moves this planet. That power belongs to God and him alone. The queen is dead. And we cry now, God, save the king. But whatever the future holds, remember this, the true king has always been on his throne. High and lifted up. The earth is his. And we are under his control. And Isaiah wanted to lay that thought before the people of Judah in their confusion, in their fearfulness, in their sadness at the loss of their monarch. His vision. And then verse 5 we see his vexation. Then said I, woe is me for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It was interesting throughout the previous chapter Isaiah had been casting these other woes, six in all, upon various people within the society of Judah. Those who were guilty of selfish ambition, those who were guilty of carnal pleasures, those who were willfully sinning, those who had perverted values, those who were full of pride, those who were engaging in injustices. It was woe unto them and woe unto them and woe unto them and woe unto them and woe unto them. But he gets sight of the Lord. And what's his cry now? Woe unto me. For I am undone. Woe unto me for I am undone. Not only are the people that surround him immoral and unclean. But he views himself as unclean also. And and how is his uncleanliness revealed? It's revealed by the words of his mouth. He says I'm a man of unclean lips. What comes out of our mouths is a revelation of what is upon our hearts. Jesus said this, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. And notice his visitation in verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin 
purged, a, a live coal, a burning ember taken from the altar, placed upon his lips. You know, an altar is by definition a place of sacrifice, a, a burning ember, a fire is symbolic of judgment from a place of sacrifice and a place of judgment. Isaiah is cleansed. This angel says, Lo, this has touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. You see the typology of it, don't you? You get the picture for the altar that is being foreseen is the altar of Calvary. The fire is the judgment of God falling upon the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. It's by his blood we are cleansed. But then I want you to see in verses 8 through 12 the voice. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, sent me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord hath removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. You know, a call is heard coming from the throne room of God. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us, for the triune God? God wants to know whom he should send to speak to this hurting people with the message of the Lord. Who should go to Judah in the light of their sin following the death of their king? Who will tell them to look up and not look down? Who will tell them to view the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up? And of course the question is a poetic tool. The Lord already knows who he's going to send. Isaiah has been summoned into his presence to this very end. You know, the call of God upon a person's life is a very real thing. Elisha heard it when he was plowing upon his father's farm. Gideon heard it as he was threshing wheat. Jeremiah heard it as did John the Baptist from their mother's wombs. And others have heard it down through the centuries. A call to a life of service. Sometimes met with great success. Sometimes with complete indifference. And that would be the case in Isaiah's ministry. Maybe you've heard that call. Maybe God is laying his hand upon your life. And you hear that cry, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Will you say, here am I, sent me? That's what Isaiah said. This week in our nation, everything changed. Yet nothing changed. Our God is still the same. The command of the Great Commission still bears down upon us. 
We have a duty until Jesus comes to tell the gospel. Isaiah says, how long do I, how long do I carry on preaching? You know, if the people aren't going to hear, if their hearts are fat, if their ears are heavy, if they shut their eyes, if they won't listen, if they won't hear, how long do I go on? And the Lord says, you go on until the cities be wasted without, without inhabitants, until the houses without man, until the land be utterly desolate. In other words, until judgment fall. And that's our call also. To share the word of God in season and out season. Whether men or women want to hear it or not. Right now the gospel is out of season. People don't want to know. But that ought not to change our commitment to the commission. Our responsibility remains the same and our God is unchanged and still upon his throne when I was first saved we used to sing a little chorus I haven't heard it in many years I'm sure some of you will remember it God is still on the throne and he will remember his own though trials may press us and burdens distress us he never will leave us alone God is still on the throne he never will leave us alone His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. In her 2011 Christmas address, the Queen famously said, God sent into the world a unique person. Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Concerning that gospel, a greater and higher throne than hers inquires. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Who will tell the world about Jesus, if not us? Who will reach points past for Christ, if not us? Who will win your lost relatives to Christ if not you who will reach out to your lost colleagues if you don't do it God says whom shall I send who will go for us will you in these uncertain and unsettled times say Lord here am I send me everything has changed And yet nothing has changed. God is still on his throne. The gospel remains still the same. And it's still our duty to share it. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going to rise and sing our final hymn of this part of our service. Worship the King, all glorious above, will gratefully sing his power and his love.
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before Thee this day, grateful, Lord, that You indeed are seated upon Your throne, high and lifted up, and Your train fills the temple there. Lord, I pray today as we get that vision in our hearts and minds that Isaiah saw, that will comfort us and remind us and reassure us that no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way in the days, the months, the years ahead, that Lord, you knew it from the beginning and that the future is in your hand. And so Lord, we rest assured in your grace in your compassion, and your mercies, in your ineffable love for us. We rejoice in your salvation. And Lord, we want to exalt thee and praise thee at this hour. Lord, bless each head bowed, each heart gathered here, Lord. I'm sure we've all had our own thoughts concerning the week past, and at times each one of us has felt a measure of sadness at the parting of our Queen. But Lord, we pray you minister unto us as a people, as an assembly, but also as a nation. And God, we pray that out of this sad loss, that good might come. And that the gospel might go forth. The people might indeed inquire concerning Her Majesty's faith and opportunities afforded us to share the Christ who was her Saviour. Now, Father, bless us as we gather around the table in a few moments. Be with us as we focus upon the cross. As we think there about that altar, And we think there about the judgment that befell the Lord Jesus in our behalf. Lord, meet with us there and remind us of the great cost of our salvation. Bless those who are heading homeward at this time. Grant to them traveling mercies as they go. And bring each one back to us in due course that we might worship with them and they with us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen.